Scripture today comes from John chapter 7. John chapter 7, starting in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I am known, I know him, for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Here ends the reading of God's word. The church has for a long time had a Christian year called a liturgical year. And the Christian year does not exactly follow the calendar year. Uh, it, It does generally, but there are some differences. The liturgical year, the Christian year, revolves around two poles, uh, Christmas and Easter. Christmas and Easter are the big ones, and both of them have a period leading up to them. Advent leading up to Christmas, Lent leading up to Easter, and then they both have holidays that follow them. Uh, After Easter is Pentecost, and after Christmas is what's called Epiphany. (coughs) In the Christian year, Advent begins the new year. That means next year is the beginning of the next liturgical year. So this Sunday is the last Sunday of the liturgical year, and it is a high point of the year. It's a very special Sunday (coughs) called Christ the King Sunday. This week is also Thanksgiving, which is not actually a Christian holiday, although we can see that it's a pretty Christian theme. Uh, It's actually a little ironic that it's a a, uh, holiday where we celebrate the pilgrims, but the pilgrims were Puritans, and the Puritans were known, among many things, for not believing in holidays. It's true if you look that up. They didn't celebrate any holidays. And so the fact that we have one, kind of funny. (coughs) So what I want to do here today is take a look at the idea of Jesus as Christ the King and then look at the idea of gratitude that should come from that concept of Christ the King. The word Christ is used 531 times in the New Testament. I didn't count those. I read those in a book. Christ is used in all four Gospels, but it's especially important in the Apostle Paul. He uses it more than anybody else. Paul was a Pharisee. He was trying to justify who this Jesus person was, and he often calls him Jesus Christ. This is what we commonly believe of as his last name, as if Joseph Christ married Mary, and then you have Mary and Joseph Christ and Jesus Christ. But they didn't have last names in those days. You weren't known by your last name. You were known as a town you were from. So Jesus was known as Jesus of Nazareth. That's why there's a big debate about how can he be the Christ if we know where he's from. He's Jesus of Nazareth. Everybody knows where Jesus is from. But he didn't have a last name. Christ isn't a last name. It's a term. And it's an important Greek word, Christos, refers to oil or to anointing. 
If you want to understand Christos, you first got to understand the Old Testament word that this word is based on. It's a Hebrew word, Messiah, or you would know the word Messiah. It refers to anointing or pouring of oil. So there were these certain moments when you became a priest or when you had to be cleansed as a priest to go into the the temple, the Holy of Holies, or when you were anointed as king, they would pour oil over you. And it was meant to be a sign that God's blessing and God's provision was upon you. It was also a symbol of blessing and honor and a symbol of healing. There are certain points where if you got sick for a while and then got better, so you were unclean for a while and then all of a sudden you were clean and you wanted to go back into the temple, you had to bathe and that's part of where we get our idea of baptism, but you also had to have oil pour it on you as a a symbol of this cleansing of God, this oil sort of dripping down and consuming you. Again, this is very much tinting our view of baptism and the New Testament's understanding of baptism. In the Bible, David was the anointed one. He was the king. And if you remember the story, he's anointed as king well before he becomes king. He's anointed as a king, but then he has to wait until Saul dies before he actually takes on that role. The prophets look forward to the Messiah, an anointed one, somebody who would come. And they even made a lot of references to this being a relative of David's, someone who would be from where? The house and lineage of David. Prophets also use reference to to the idea that this coming one This one who was going to be especially anointed by God in a way that the kings and the priests and the prophets, even beyond what they were, they often have this underlying meaning of freedom too. It's very tinted by the the story of Moses. So in the prophets, you see this David and Moses sort sort of tinting how they think this coming special one, this coming anointed one would be. A big question of the New Testament is, is Jesus the Messiah? Is Jesus this anointed one? And the the New Testament really tries strongly to make that case. In fact, if you go back and look, you'll see both Matthew and Luke in their genealogies try to tie Jesus to David to say, yes, he is part of the anointed line. When Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit descends on, on Jesus like a dove, and it is a moment of holy anointing. Not just anointed by a priest or anointed by John the Baptist, the forerunner. He is anointed by God the Father in heaven in a special anointing. We remember in the Bible that Jesus is anointed uh, by a woman with costly oils. In fact, very ironic, they're burial, burial oils. And our text from John 7, this is exactly the debate they're trying to have. All right. Is this Jesus character, this Messiah, this Christos, that we think he's, that he might be? The, the priests are saying no, that he's bad and they're trying to kill him. But maybe deep down they know he's the Christos because he, he's doing all these miracles. How could he not be the Messiah if he has this special anointing to do stuff that we haven't seen since the days of Elijah? We haven't seen anybody do any of this stuff since Moses. How could this not be the Messiah? This is the debate that's going on. That word Christos is a really interesting word because it's actually in those days a, uh, a word for uh, a, a, a specific kind of oil. Okay, uh, It was Christos oil. There were two kinds of oils in Jesus' day. 
Christos and Pistos. Pistos was the really costly oil. It was, um, it was used by the rich for bathing. And, and you got to understand how important oil is in these days. Okay, you can't just go take a shower anytime you want. You're in the desert wearing sandals. Your skin gets dry. You need oil to be able to keep your skin together, to keep your body together. Um, it's just essential part of life. And the wealthy would use the pistos. The wealthy would use the fancier oil, the, the expensive oil. That's what they would bathe in. That's what they would use. That's what kings would use. But the Christos, that was the less expensive everyday oil. That was the oil that everybody could use. It's very interesting that when, the, when they use this word Christos, they don't use pistos. It's interesting because Jesus is not the pistos kind of Jesus. He's not the kind of anointed one who's only for the rich, only for the wealthy, only for those who are good enough and can afford it. He is the Christos. He is the anointed one for the common people. Pistos is like extra virgin olive oil. It's the nice oil. But Jesus is the Christos. He's the Crisco. He's the everyday use, everyday affordable kind of Jesus. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've done in your life, no matter how bad you think you are, this is a Messiah for you. This is a Messiah for you. This is an everyday. This is not a Messiah just for special occasions. It's the Crisco. It's the Christos. It's the Jesus. It's the Messiah that's for your everyday needs, your everyday life. That's who this Christ is. So Paul all the time is saying Jesus Christ because he wants to emphasize that this Jesus is not just a man, but he's also the anointed one, this holy, amazing Christos. The idea that Jesus is anointed for everyone should not detract, though, from the reality that Jesus is anointed as king. He's in the lineage of David. Both Matthew and Luke make that clear in their genealogies. He talked about his kingdom all the time. He announced it using parables and metaphors, trying to say, yeah, I've got this kingdom. It's coming, and it's here. And it's not like a normal kingdom, but believe me, it is my kingdom. What does a king do? A king represents his people in larger issues, and a king rules his people. And Jesus does both those things for us. He represents us as his people with God the Father. He does that in prayer, but he especially did that on the cross when he dies for our sin. With a crown of thorns on his head and a sign above him saying that he was what? King of the Jews. Paul clearly believes that Christ rules. He talks about him ruling in creation, that he was part of all creation, that all things were made through him, and that he now rules in creation. In the book of Revelation, we see that in the end, all will bow to this king, every knee, every tongue, and Jesus will rule this world fully as a king. I hope you're picking up on the paradoxical nature of Christ the king. Paradox makes it Christ the King. Paradox meaning two things said side by side that say the opposite, but at the same time are both true, right? He's the king for all. He's the king of all, but he's also the king for all. He has this power, but he also has grace. He has authority, but he also has gentleness. The irony of a king born in a manger. The irony of a king crowned with a crown of thorns. And marked as a king at his own crucifixion. 
Yet this odd mix of Christ the King is very good news for us. Grace, love, and forgiveness follow. This is a king where it doesn't matter what you've done. This is a king that doesn't hold a grudge. This is a king that cares deeply about how you've been harmed and what has been wrongly done to you. And at the same time, we need a king which has authority in our lives and in this world. And we have to learn to submit to that king. There's this great line in the Chronicles of Narnia, a kid's book that C.S. Lewis wrote that has a lot of spiritual truth in it, where uh, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, these two characters, are talking about Aslan, the Christ character in the book. And uh, one of the things they say is that he is not a tame lion. That Aslan is not a tame lion. And that's the other side of Christ the King, right? We love the gracious, loving God, but he is also not a tame lion. He is also a king and demands our respect and a sense of awe and a healthy dose of fear when we go to pray to our king. At the same time, gratitude, because God had every right to despise you and I and wipe us out. But instead, Jesus comes and set aside, sets aside all the glory of heaven to come and suffer for you and for I and for me. Everything that we are, everything we have, everything that God does through us, they're all gifts. Undeserved gifts that God gives to us despite ourselves. Food and friends and family. All who gathered around the fattened bird this week. Some in our midst will have new members at the table. New grandkids. New in-laws. Some in our midst will be thinking of those who are not at the Thanksgiving table. Because they have gone on to be with the Lord. And we will miss them this week. We thank God that he is Christ the King. In both the good and the bad. In both the ups and the downs. That takes a special kind of position. It takes a little bit of work for us to intentionally get that way with God. In the 18th and the 19th and early 20th century, there were these things called stirrup cups. This is not a real antique one, um, but this is a stirrup cup. And so what you used to do is before you would go on a hunt, uh, particularly fox or boar or uh, bear hunts, they, you would toast to the, to, the, um, to the hunt. You'd be on horseback. And so most hunters and most of the wealthy would have a cup that was their stirrup cup. And you would be on your horse. It was so called because you would be in the stirrups as you would toast to the, to the journey. A lot of times for, for the king, the priests would come and they would toast and give a blessing for the journey, uh, for the hunt. And so you'd have a little bit of, uh, it's normally port. Anyway, uh, and you would toast to the journey in your stirrups and you would drink and then your stirrup cup would go into your saddlebag and you would keep it on your saddlebag throughout the journey as a sign of that blessing. Um, most of them were, were kind of simple at first. They were sort of rounded. Um, they weren't often set uh, up, upright. They were set downwards because they were really rounded. And then as time went on, they began to carve animals into them. If you can see, this one's a wolf head. Um, I have a couple of smaller ones here. Uh, that are different animals. This one is a wolf head. And this one's actually designed so you can flip it upside down and stand it on its head and then use it to drink and then you set it back down. Everybody see that? It's a stirrup cup. Kind of a neat tradition. Um, 
But also today, I want to use it as a neat symbol. Because sometimes what we really need to do is flip ourselves upside down and get open to God's work and God's rule and God's leadership in our lives. It's very easy for us to close off to God and to not want God to reign in our lives. And and to say, okay, this is good stuff that's mine, God, and I'm not willing to give it up. Or this is bad stuff that's happened in my life, and it defines me, and I'm not willing to let go of it. And yet, when we're closed off, when we're closed off, there's no way for God's anointing to come into our lives. We're closed off to Christ coming into our lives. We have to open up. We have to turn ourselves over. Everybody just put your hands up like this, right right in your lap. This has got to be our position. This has got to be our position with Christ the King. Open hand, not clinging to stuff. Open to God's blessing. Sometimes it's not that we, sometimes it's not that we have this, this hanging on to stuff. Sometimes we just get desperate. You ever been at that point? Something happens in your life and you're just desperate for God to come in and do something because you feel empty and you feel hollow you got to sometimes intentionally open up your hands, turn your life over, and be ready to receive Christ the King at work in your life. In your life. Giving to God the things that we cling to and f- begging Christ to fill our aching and hollow souls. So today, I want to do something a little different at the end of a sermon. this sermon. I want to give everybody a chance if you would like, and there's no pressure, but to let go of some of those areas where you're holding on or to, or to go ahead and intentionally ask God to be poured out in an area of your life where you feel dry or you feel hollow. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to stand here, and uh, if you would like, I'll ask you to come forward and just open up your hands. Okay, so you're just going to stand before me like this with your hands open. And I'm not going to ask you to explain to me. It's totally, I mean, it's not anonymous. I know who you are. But I don't have to know. uh, It can be unspoken. I don't have to know uh, what you're praying about, what you're trying to give to God, where you're trying to ask God to be poured into your life. Um, But I just want you to stand like that. And I have with me some anointing oil. It's actually made out of frankincense. And uh, on a day when we're celebrating that Christ was the anointed one, I want to just anoint you. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to use a little bit of that to anoint your wrists. And I'm going to give you a quick word of blessing and anointing. And then you can find your way back to your seat. Again, you don't have to feel pressure to come forward. It's fine. Um, But we're just going to play a little bit of music and uh, allow those who feel like that's something they want to do to come forward. Um, Just open your hands and I'll anoint your wrists. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that we would open ourselves to you, that we would let you be Christ the King in our lives, let you rule and also let you love. Lord, as as some come forward, pray that you would give them a sense of peace and grace. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll ask if you want to come forward. Open your palms and I'll anoint your wrists. A little blessing. You can go back. I want to also say, um, sorry. Um, some of you might be feeling like there's somebody else in your life that really needs to be like this. And they're like this. 
and quenched. And, and I don't know what you're praying about. So if you want to do this for somebody else, I think that would be also a special thing to do. Um, if you're ready, come forward.